We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Rippy writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Happy Wednesday. I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes Podcast. Today, got a packed show. We're going to do so. Uh, I'm going to do a little Lane Kiffin open at the top, and then we're going to talk to Gary Smith. Gary is the two lane beat writer for the Baton Rouge, New Orleans Advocate newspapers there in Louisiana, and also runs the Tulane rival site there. Got into a number of different topics. Tulane has a pair of coordinators, pair of new coordinators, I should say, uh, including Chip Long, who, if you remember that name, he was Notre Dame's offensive coordinator in 2018 for that playoff team, was fired the next year after being named a Broyles Award finalist in 18. That was more of a personality issue, if I remember that correctly, than anything else. Offense regressed a little bit, but got into what is really an interesting two-lane offense. A lot of pre-snap motions get the tight end involved. Kind of looks like it would be run heavy on the surface, but hasn't been through two games this year. And uh, that may change against an Ole Miss run defense that hasn't really been tested yet. But got into a number of different topics against what could probably be described as Ole Miss's best opponent yet. Uh, Whatever you may think of Louisville, that's obviously the debate. I don't think Louisville is very good. I think you saw that on display on Labor Day night. I think they could still win seven games in a pretty mediocre ACC. But uh, Tulane's good. And uh, they're certainly good enough to beat Ole Miss if they don't play well. I think Lon's like, somewhere around 14, 15 points. That seems about right. Uh, And Tulane's an interesting program. It's a tough job. Willie Fritz has done a great job there, but they're looking to kind of take the next step. They've been to three straight bowl games, program record, but the next step is kind of, you know, maybe stealing a marquee game like this. And obviously the main next step would be kind of cracking that top four in the American Athletic Conference. Uh, Realignment aside, the top four I'd be kind of getting at would be UCF, Cincinnati, SMU, and Memphis. So anyway, we got into a number of different things. He gave a great breakdown of the offense, what Tulane is replacing on defense, and what their issues were last year that led to the defensive coordinator firing. I would encourage you to look up some of Tulane's third and fourth down numbers last year, make you feel better about what was an atrocious Ole Miss defense. But anyway, appreciate uh, appreciate Gary's time. Gave a nice uh, Michael Pratt breakdown, interesting quarterback prospect. So decent bit of Tulane talk today, but – I'm going to get into a little bit of a Lane Kiffin open at the top, I think, just based off of uh, my text messages the last day or so. But before we get to that, I wanted to remind you the podcast is brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They have never lost an NFL uh, bet they've placed or given out in the year 2021. The 
they went seven and zero in their first NFL week. So if you didn't get on the skybox train last week, you just cost yourself money because if you got out there and you're listening, I know you didn't go seven and zero. And odds are you probably had to pay the man or you barely scraped in under the bubble. You need to go check these guys out. Skyboxsportspicks.com. In addition to the seven and zero week in the NFL, they uh, hit a nice little tasty Kyle Busch at plus 550 to win whatever the NASCAR race was. I don't say that dismissively. I don't know shit about NASCAR. You guys learned that this summer when I had their NASCAR handicapper on. But Skybox is absolutely crushing it right now. They're going to have a picks package to fit your price range through month-long pass, uh, season-long pass. You can go week-long. Whatever whatever kind of fits your comfort zone, they're going to have it. You go sports-centric, whether it's college, NFL, or you go all sports. Uh, I'd recommend just doing the year-long pass. It's going to pay for itself back and then some. I mean, can you imagine what you what you would do with the money you'd have in your pocket right now for a 7-0 and NFL week? Of course you do. You should have already gotten on it. I hope many of you did. I know last week was a big week for the promo code, so I appreciate you guys letting them know we sent you. But check them out, skyboxsportspick.com. Best gambling handicapping website in the land. A lot of pretenders out there. Skybox record speaks for itself. 7-0, and you can't argue with it. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Go see Greg. Best beat market in Mississippi and in the world for that matter. Oxford is so lucky to have a place as awesome as LB's. Greg actually cares about you having a good grilling experience. Greg loves grilling himself. He makes a ton of different types of food. He just loves it. Need to check them out. If you're a Rippy Wright subscriber, that's rippywrights.substack.com. Type in your email. You get a free newsletter from me three to five times a week. And discounted meats. I'll let you decide which one's better. Right now, you get a 16-ounce prime strip for 15 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. That's a hell of a way to kickstart a college football Saturday. So go check them out. they got so much other stuff, seafood, sausages, all kinds of different stuff. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger, absolutely the best place in the world to get meat. Opening the podcast today, before we get to Gary Smith, I'd like to <laughs> – I guess I'd like to do – I don't even know if this counts as a first take segment, but I would like to get into the, I guess, uh, the USC news and by default, I guess, kind of the the Lane Kiffin uh, connection to that. Uh, it kind of feels weird to even address this in September because USC, I mean, if you need a side of, sign of a dysfunctional athletic department, a guy that's perennially been on the hot seat for two and a half to three years and Clay Helton gets fired two games into the 2021 season, why not just fire him in the offseason? What did you see in two games that you absolutely hated so much that pushed you over the edge? Stanford coming in and pushing you around and kicking your ass really pushed you between, ah, we like Kelton and ah, actually he's got to go. No, it didn't. There's too many cooks in the kitchen there. I don't think they have strong leadership, but that's really not what I was trying to get at today. Of course, after the news breaks yesterday that USC will be moving on from Clay Helton, the natural well, social media age rumor mill just takes just takes men on the internet everywhere, firing their guns and just unloading takes on who should be the next coach or who will be the next coach at SEC. Then you get the classic accounts out there. If you're on, if you're someone on the Twitter sphere, which unfortunately I still am for job purposes, I would not have Twitter if I didn't halfway work in this industry still. But that's neither here nor there either. You'll get the account that's like SEC football now. And just by reading that name, that's how we're, so, we're, we've gotten so dumbed down as a society. So there's somebody can just create a Twitter account that just says like sports talk SEC or some shit and just tweet out the most random nonsense ever. And people are like, Oh, this seems legit. Guy's got a logo. Never mind that he probably just took it off of Google, the SEC logo um, and has a couple thousand followers. This seems pretty legit. So you got those dudes flying around talking about Dan Mullen's job to turn down, shit like that. That's always huge 
to have a guy with a source that no one else has, no national reporter has on a coaching search. It's going to last three months, but is apparently down to two candidates within a week. That's always clutch. Uh, I believe actually one of those accounts, uh, we even put out that uh, Dan Mullen, sitting head coach at Florida that plays Alabama, the most, uh, the toughest game on its schedule this week, was going to be meeting with USC officials on Wednesdays. Would love to see the logistics of that. Maybe we get some flight trackers on that. We'll get IT on it. So uh, I'm sure that's impeccable information. But anyway, ranting aside about the stupidness of this kind of silly season starting in week two now as it pertains to college football and the coaching carousel, which I don't mind. It's the nature of the beast. Naturally, my phone started not blowing up. I'm really not that important and that popular. But I got several text messages within the last day or two being like, Lane Kiffin, USC. Like, what do you think? It's like, what do you mean what do I think? I don't think anything. It's, it's September. Like, this is, this is going to play out over the next three months. The only benefit to firing your coach two weeks into a season is having the benefit of three months to slow play it, kind of figure it out, get your ducks in the row, talk to a lot of different people, and ideally make a sound decision. Now, you could make the argument a lot of times these athletic departments, when they do this early in the year, it just gives themselves time to trip over their own you-know-what, for the lack of a better phrase. Like, it's, it's almost just like, like giving you time to overthink it and make a poor decision. But in theory, the one benefit of doing this two weeks in the season, the, the cons outweigh the pros. I still don't understand the decision, as I outlined a few minutes ago, is the fact that you do have some time to talk to a, diff- a lot of different people. And I don't even mean just candidates. Just kind of get a feel for, you know, different things within the industry, get some advice from different people, and also interview a lot of different people as well. When the time comes, that's going to be a little tougher to do, particularly with sitting head coaches during the season. But this is a major job. Whatever you think of USC as a program and the success they've had on and off the field over the last decade, half decade, whatever, since Pete Carroll left, this is still a major name brand job. It is the marquee job west of the Rockies. And for the sake of college football not becoming completely regionalized, which I could argue it already has to some degree, they need USC to be good. The sport of college football needs USC to be good and needs USC to be relevant. So naturally, there's going to be a lot of talk. And this is, there's going to be, talk about takesmen out there and just ridiculous rumor mills and circles. Think about having the Texas job open with three months less. This is basically just Texas West. This is going to get out of control. And it's already started as it pertains to Ole Miss and Lane Kiffin. So I get several texts over the last day or so asking what I think about Lane Kiffin, to which I just respond, I don't really think anything. If you're kind of the self-loathing Ole Miss fan out there that's listening to this thinking, well, he's probably gone. I don't really understand that line of thinking, and I'll give it to you from a number of different reasons. The natural candidates that have been thrown out there so far for the USC job, and the odds it turns into one of them, I guess, may be pretty good, but these things never always turn out the way they seem, are what? James Franklin, Urban Meyer, probably some Matt Campbell buzz, Certainly Luke Fickle buzz, the head coach at Cincinnati, because the athletic director, I think his name is Mike Bone. I'm not, I, don't, I, don't, I probably have that wrong. He came from Cincinnati USC. So the guy, in theory, calling the shots, or at least running this goat rodeo circus, has ties to Luke Fickle at Cincinnati. So those names all make sense. What do all those names have in common? National championships, access bowls, sustained success over at least a three-year period. And in James Franklin's case, in Urban Meyer's case, obviously a hell of a lot longer than that. Whatever you think of James Franklin as a person, he wanted a level at Vanderbilt that hasn't been done since. And you could argue it's probably never going to happen again. 
whatever you think of Urban Meyer and his chest pains and his headaches and you might use that again to get to get out to Southern California because I watched that Jaguars game on Sunday or parts of it on the red zone. They can't block anyone, and he might ruin a generational quarterback prospect. He's probably not upset that this job came open. Just saying. But anyway, those all, all those guys, all those names we named have things in common. Access Bowl, 10-win season, national championships in some aspects. I know Luke Fickle doesn't have one. James Franklin doesn't have one. Urban Meyer does. Um, but they all have sustained success over a longer period of time. What else do they have in common? No prior history to USC. Like, no real, like, you know, real blood, I guess, whether that's good or bad blood. I don't know if any of those guys have ever worked on staff at USC. I don't think that's the case, but I'm too lazy to go look it up. But they also have that in common. Lane Kiffin is a name. He's a guy that generates buzz. He's a guy that generates clicks. When you click on the USA Today article speculating about Lane Kiffin to USC, the reason you're getting it is because they want you, uh, millions of people, millions of suckers, I should say, just like you, to click through all those pop-up ads to read whatever horseshit Walken has spit up onto a page that day. Probably something related to Lane Kiffin. But I just don't put any merit to it. This doesn't. I don't have any sort of inside knowledge on this. I know someone who covers USC a pretty good friend of mine. I know a person or two out there that's somewhat around the program, but I'm not any sort of insider on this. So this is all just complete speculation on my part. This doesn't pass the smell test to me. Lane Kiffin hasn't done anything. Lane Kiffin, as a head coach, I'm going to make sure I have this right, as a head coach, has gone to three bowl games. I believe he's gone to a Boca Raton Bowl. He went to the Outback Bowl last year with Ole Miss, and he went to – what was the third bowl game he went to? Did he get to one with USC? I think there's a holiday bowl mixed in. Sun Bowl, excuse me. So, no, sorry, four. He went to Chick-fil-A Bowl the one year at U, uh, Tennessee. One Sun Bowl when USC got off probation in 2012. Boca Raton Bowl with Florida Atlantic, another Boca Raton Bowl, and then the Outback win over Ole Miss. His head, resume – his record as a head coach is quite good in college, 60 – 68 and 39 but he hasn't done anything he's he's had one two three three seven and six years a five and seven year 11 win year at Florida Atlantic a 10 win year at Florida Atlantic and one 10 win year at USC and I think what he did at USC was actually pretty good and it was totally unfair he wasn't great and he actually said this in an article that I actually have pulled up right now because it leads me to a later point about he wasn't really graded on a fair scale there so Lane Kiffin hasn't done anything yet. And I think that's often lost because everything he's done since he's gotten to Ole Miss has seemingly been good. You know, for a program and a university that is often kind of associated with this function, Ole Miss has become a pretty likable brand in a pretty short amount of time. He goes 5-5 five and five last year, 4-5 and five in the regular season, has one of the more exciting offenses, turn Matt, Matt, turns Matt Corral into a Heisman candidate, and they're fun, and he's a fun quote sometimes when he wants to be. He's cool on Twitter. He goes on national media shows. He's a likable guy, and he's a guy that generates a lot of buzz. He pokes fun at Nick Saban, but he hasn't done anything yet. I, I don't think – I'm not saying he won't. I, I, I think Ole Miss is – Keith Carter made a hell of a hire. I think Ole Miss is going to be pretty good this year. I wrote in the newsletter, and Weldon and I talked about this on Sunday night. Ole Miss has a real opportunity – to be the second best team in the SEC West. And again, I'd like to see a lot more of them, particularly defensively, but has a chance, a chance realistically to back in their way into an access bowl this year and really take a jump as a program. 
But again, none of that has happened yet. He hasn't done it yet. What happens if this defense suffers a couple injuries and they don't, don't turn out to be any better at all up front, or at least not significantly better, and Ole Miss goes 7-5 and five because they can't stop anyone again? I don't think that's going to happen, but it's possible. He's not in the air of ta- – I guess he's not in the same class as those guys yet. Yes, do I think he's a good coach? Yes. I think Ole Miss hired an adult. I think they hired a big boy to run their program. And I think Lane Kiffin, if he sticks around for four or five years, will build a winner at Ole Miss. I do. I, I, I'm fully on the Lane Kiffin train. But it's like – it's like a it, – but also, why do you have to – it's like anointing the guy before it happens. I was trying to come up with a metaphor on the spot there, and I can't come up with a good one. But it's like he's been anointed before actually doing anything. And go watch his press conference this week and really the last two weeks. And Neil wrote about this. I'd encourage you to subscribe to rebelgrove.com. Pretty sick plug in there. But Neil has a good segment that he does every week, a written piece of content called What He Said Versus What He Meant. I may have butchered the name there. But he takes a Lane Kiffin quote and interprets it to think, to interpret what he thinks it means. And Neil's pretty good at that stuff. Like he's, it's, it's a good content piece is what I'm getting at. Lane Kiffin, throughout the week, he, he kind of dunked on pro football focus. If, I don't know if any of you out there have seen that, but in his Monday press conference, he talked about how he wasn't pleased with the offensive line play. Well, pro football focus graded Ole Miss as the third best offensive line in the country after week two. Not after week two, the third best performance in week two out of 130 FBS offensive lines. Lane Kiffin dunked on him. was like, well, they don't really know much about watching film because here's what I saw. And then kind of sarcastically gave why he was not happy with the offensive line. And then at the end of his answer, dropped a classic, but what do I know? Of course, he knows more about his team than pro football focus. But what Lane Kiffin is trying to do, whether it's the offensive line or him talking about guys needing to step up on the defensive line, what Lane Kiffin is trying to do, and Neil wrote about this in there, and I thought he made a good point, is pump the brakes on his own program and say, look, guys, we haven't done anything yet. Austin P sucks. Louisville, obviously, I don't think is going to end up being very good based on what I saw. Maybe we end up wrong on that. But that version of Louisville was not a very good football team. I, he's trying to tell his own program right now, hey, we haven't done anything yet. And so, like, listen to what he's saying. If, if you don't believe me, he hasn't done anything yet. And he knows that. And he's trying to temper expectations that have soared very quickly for a program that doesn't have any results yet. That's not Lane Kiffin's fault. It's a product of doing all the right things and being a fun brand and being exciting. It's a good problem to have. But if the sitting head coach, whose current record at Ole Miss is, by my count, seven and five total, is trying to pump the brakes on his own expectations, why is some halfway rational athletic director when, in theory, they could hire someone with a lot more accessible experience, 10-win season, sustained success over a long period of time, Going to make going to hire Lane Kiffin. USC doesn't need a name brand, doesn't need a name splash like Ole Miss needed in 19. USC needs to win football games again. They need to hire the best possible coach and not go with it's kind of a blend between Texas and Michigan. They have a lot of cooks in the kitchen from a booster perspective. There's dysfunction in the athletic department. And then they have a little bit of this weird twist of wanting to hire a USC guy, kind of like the whole like Michigan man thing. No, does he have to be a graduate of USC? Of course not. But guy that has previous ties to USC in Southern California. I don't understand that. USC needs to hire the best football coach available. And they're right now, given resume and track record, better football coaches than Lane Kiffin. If you're out there mad and sitting there thinking, I think Lane Kiffin is better than James Franklin. I think Lane Kiffin is better than Urban Meyer. I can't really help you. The resume just doesn't really compare. And so if you're one of those self-loathing Ole Miss fans who's sitting there thinking, you know, he's probably gone great. Like, can you just sit back and enjoy it for a second? Like one, 
your program hasn't done anything yet. Your program is also exciting. Your program also has a Heisman contender at quarterback, a fun offense, and an improved defense with the real opportunity to make some noise in the SEC West this year behind Alabama. So I would just caution you to pump the brakes because you're going to be miserable over the next three months because, one, this is not going away. The, the USC churn and the USC hot board and all that shit, that, that cycle, that news cycle is going to perpetuate and probably do some pretty wild things because we have three months as a society and a collective internet society to just fester on it and fire, empty our holster of takes and bad information and stuff. And Lane Kiffin will absolutely be in the mix of that. But I think the timing of this, beyond it not passing the smell test, I guess back to wrap up my point because I've gotten pretty rambly here. The other reasons I don't think it passed the smell test is also the timing of it. Again, he hasn't necessarily done anything yet. If Lane Kiffin had, it was in year four, and it finished 10-3 and three last year, and Ole Miss had gone to the Chick-fil-A Bowl, and Corral was back. Uh, you know, in, in this version of Corral, and Ole Miss had a better defense, and he'd had a 10-win season under his belt. Okay, I'd buy into it a little more. The other fact is, is they fired Lane Kiffin on a tarmac at LAX, what, seven years ago? Was that 2014? I can't remember if it was 2014 or 2013. I just had it up. It's a different AD, but a lot of the same people still work there. and. I just can't imagine that Lane Kiffin, well, yes, would he like to be closer to his kids and closer to his family in Southern California where he put some roots down for the first, like for really the first time in his professional life seemingly? Yes, absolutely. But is he going to take, even if he's offered, let's just say he's offered a second, is he going to take that job that, you know, if you had a boss that fired you in pretty unsavory fashion and then an opportunity arise to work at that company again, even though it's not the same direct boss, there's some of the same people there. Are you really dying to go back there just for a slight pay raise? I wouldn't. I don't think it's that different. Yes, it is. The college football is different to some degree, but I don't think from looking at it from a sheer working perspective, it's all that different. There's still some of the same people there. That same dysfunction lives there. The same people that pulled the trigger on Lane Kiffin getting him fired, whether it was the guy who actually delivered the message or not, are still around. And I'm just not sure he's necessarily dying to go back there, even if his family back there, and it might be an inter- a better setup to be around his kids. I don't know what Lane Kiffin thinks. Again, I'm speculating here. I wasn't around Lane Kiffin. Uh, long enough to know. And even if I had been around longer and was still doing this full time, Lane Given doesn't talk to anyone in the local media. Like he just doesn't have any use for us. I don't say that. I say us. I'm not even really in the local media anymore. He doesn't have any use for the local media. You know, he's, he's, he's a bigger name than that. Like the, the part of what is kind of drawing him in terms of him being connected to that job other than the prior history is the fact that he is such a big name and a, a, I don't know if well-liked, but he's definitely a prominent figure in the college football industry. So part of what's driving this is also part of why no one seems to know what Lane Kiffin thinks at any given moment, because usually that's up to local media to actually kind of have the better sourcing and figure out what a guy's thinking and what happens. And no one knows that. So I don't know what Lane Kiffin thinks. I don't know what he wants. I don't know what his next move is. I don't know what he values in another job. Do I think there are jobs out there that Lane Kiffin would take him offered? Absolutely. Do I think he'll be offered those jobs without winning at a higher clip than he has so far in a year and two games at Ole Miss? No, I don't. I think he's going to have to win and prove it. I think he will. Again, I think he will build a winner at Ole Miss, and I think he will end up being a good coach. And there will be come in the coming years, I think there will be other offers that will probably be pretty enticing to him. But a year and two games into your first major head coaching job again, and the kind of the old girlfriend that you're familiar with comes calling again. He's kind of in a better place 
professionally now. And does he really want to go back to that, even though it's familiar and he enjoys Southern California? And look, I like Oxford as much as the next guy. Manhattan Beach, nicer than Oxford. Is he really going to go back to that now at this juncture? It just wouldn't make any sense. Because he has a five and five season under his belt. Just say he does take it. Let's just say Ole Miss goes nine and three. They have a great year and he takes it. He goes nine and three. Lane Kiffin's, you know, third nine win season or fourth nine win season as a head coach. Then he goes back to USC and realizes, well, this is not really the 2005 USC. They haven't really adapted to a lot of modern, modern things in college football. They don't really have the same advantages they had at the Pete Carroll era, at least not all of them. And he wins eight or nine games, three or four years in a row. People get restless and he's fired again. And he's back exactly where he was when he got fired at the tarmac at LAX. Probably not as ugly. Lane Kiffin has learned how to, you know, handle PR and media a lot better and kind of control, I don't know, control a narrative, but present himself better publicly than I think he did in his younger days. And part of that's just getting old. I mean, I'm not even getting older and wiser. Like I'm not even 30 yet. So I'm not trying to play the, put myself in Lane Kiffin's shoes game is, but imagine being the head coach of the Raiders in USC by 35 years old. You probably learn a lot and you probably make a lot of dumb mistakes while you did it the first time. Anyway, the last thing I'll say on this, I just don't see it. I don't think it passes the smell test. Do I think he will be mentioned for it constantly over the next three months? Yes. And my advice to you, if you're some self-loathing Ole Miss fan out there already tired of hearing it, just relax. There's a long way to go and a long, lot of things that have to play out. And Ole Miss needs to win, which will be the most important thing for yourself as an Ole Miss fan in the end anyway. All right, that, uh, that was my solo rant. I don't know if that was any good or not. I just had some thoughts over the last couple of days after being flooded with text messages asking if Lane Giffen is already looking at beachfront properties in Manhattan Beach. So without further ado, let's get to Gary Smith, and then we will end the podcast after that, and we'll have our usual Friday show. So anyway, here's Gary Smith. This is a great two-lane primer. All right, we now welcome on Gary Smith. He is the Tulane beat writer for The Advocate, as well as the publisher of the Tulane Rival site, joining us to talk uh, what is really an interesting matchup, given the way Tulane has played through the first two games of the season, probably learned some more about Michael Pratt, how Willie Fritz has built this program, and uh, expectations for the Tulane Green Wave in 2021. Gary, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to join us. Sure. I'm uh, looking forward to it. Um, it is. You're right. This is a big game for Tulane. Tulane's been trying, looking for a statement type game for a while under Willie Fritz. Hasn't quite gotten one. Has a very tough assignment <laughs> this Saturday, but it's the tight game that I think the players are really looking forward to. Absolutely. And it's been an unconventional yet exciting start to the year for Tulane on, on the football field, obviously, of, you know, with, in the wake of Hurricane Ida and, and everything else, it, it's been certainly kind of uh, jarring in that sense. I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't start. How are, like, how are you? How's everything been since the storm just personally? I'm, I'm doing well. My, my, my wife and I and child and, and puppy evacuated to uh, Orange Beach, Alabama um, before the hurricane hit, ended up in Houston after that. But when the power came back on in our house, there was no damage to our house. So we, we, we were gone for about 10 days, but when we got back, everything was good. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great to hear. And I guess there are, uh, there are worse places to relocate to than Orange Beach. For a few Yeah, we had, an, we had a nice hotel Indigo on the beach. It was a nice place. But the beach was closed. Uh, we got some tropical storm winds, uh, forced winds while we were there, but, but it, was, it was still pretty good. <laughs> there we go. I guess that's as good a place to start as any for those not necessarily familiar uh, kind of with Tulane's timeline from the time the, the storm was on its way from the time it hit and what they've done since kind of take us through yeah. 
from thing from the time things were not normal up until this point of them obviously still being in Birmingham. I saw, I think it maybe uh, it was you on Twitter. I think I saw yeah. something where they're coming back in a couple of weeks. Just kind of take me through what the last couple of weeks has been like. Sure. For um, the, you know, the, once it became obvious that this was a really serious hurricane and it was headed for, for pretty close to new Orleans. Um, I, I was supposed to cover a new Orleans saints preseason game for AP the Saturday um, before. And then they can't, when they canceled that game, um, my wife and I decided we should get out of town. Tulane sort of made the same decision. They, there was no mandatory evacuation, but they took off for Birmingham the day before the hurricane on, on Saturday, um, eight days before the, the season opener, again, on seven days before the season opener against Oklahoma. Um, they had these plans in place ever since Hurricane Katrina in 2005 when they got caught off guard and had all kinds of disastrous problems after that. So they, they had a plan in place. They went there and um, they you know, it was a tough time for them. Cell phones weren't working in New Orleans for the first few days. Players couldn't find out how their relatives were doing, stuff like that. But so they, they had to do that practice for Oklahoma with that type of distraction in, in Birmingham and at, at, at Legion Field. Um, it was supposed to be a home game against Oklahoma. That was going to be the biggest home game in the history of Tulane's Yulman Stadium, which opened in 2014. That got taken away, couldn't play there. The game got moved to Norman, Oklahoma. Everything was set up. All the excuses were built in for Tulane to just get their butts kicked in, in that game with all the distractions. Um, they went to Oklahoma and played a, a whale of a game. Really, their quarterback, Michael Pratt, fumbled three times in the second quarter, losing them all in, in, in Tulane territory. Other than that, they played Oklahoma dead even for the game. That gave them a they, – they were behind 37-14 at the half because of those turnovers. They came back, got an onside kick, almost had a chance to win the game. Um, it, it was a really impressive performance, and they, they've stayed in Birmingham since then, and they finally just announced today that they will play their first actual home game against UAB on September 25th in New Orleans. I'm not sure whether they're going to practice in New Orleans before that game, though. That may be the first time they're, if they're back in New Orleans. They're definitely going to stay in Birmingham all this week to get ready for, for the Rebels. Yeah, it's certainly unfortunate that you mentioned that being probably the biggest home game in Tulane history. That's kind of what I was going to get at next was like the anticipation for that game, getting a school like Oklahoma to come and then have that you know dashed away by something so out of your control has to be disappointing. What were, you know, I know things happen pretty quickly and I, I thought it seemed like at least from surface level that Oklahoma was very receptive to kind of helping Tulane and working sure. together to figure out the greatest, the best solution possible what was the players and coaching staff kind of reaction to everything? I know you mentioned they had a yeah. lot more serious issues going on, just trying to contact mm -hmm. relatives and all that. But just from like a football standpoint, what were those couple of days like and, and how did they kind of rebound to put up right. the effort they did? Well, Tulane coach Willie Fritz has a lot of strengths, but his biggest strengths is his even keel nature. I, I covered the University of Florida for 17 years, Steve Spurrier, Urban Meyer. I've never covered a coach who was as balanced and kept things and had no panic in him like 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 Willie Fritz so the players sort of I'm, I'm sure they were they had to be devastated because I'd written multiple stories starting in the spring about how much they were looking forward to getting Oklahoma at Yeoman Stadium teams like Oklahoma don't come to 30,000 seat stadiums almost ever and this was this was what was set up but you wouldn't have known it from talking to them the week before the game you wouldn't have known it from the way they played against Oklahoma because Willie Fritz, he really does that coaching cliche of treating every game the same, 
and never getting too high and never getting too low. He lives that every day. And it kind of, it was reflected in, in, in the players and, and, and they, it, it, it had, it, it was a terrible experience for them losing that game. And then I mean, losing that situation of getting that home game, but they, they, they didn't act like it. I'm talking to them. I, nobody, nobody sounded bitter. They all talked about how was, you know, nothing they could do about the hurricane, stuff like that. And, and they went in and, and they gave a terrific effort. Yeah, they really did. And I, I think you obviously hit that. I mean, I watched most all of that game because it was an early game. Ole Miss wasn't playing until that Monday night. And, like, I was able to catch pretty much the entire thing. You you hit the nail on the head with the whole three three fumbles in the second quarter is really what did them in. Because other than that, mm-hmm. it's not the – it's not the it really was not the classic, like, I'm thinking of, like, recent example, like Detroit Lions kind of coming back in right. garbage time against San Francisco. That's not what that was at all. You had those three fumbles in a row. Tulane, I think, punted twice the entire mm-hmm. game. Like, it was 37-14 at halftime, and it's yeah. like, shit, if they had just had you know, one fumble, like, this would actually right. be a game. That offense, I imagine, was as good as advertised. From your mind, covering the team, two new coordinators this year, mm-hmm. we'll start on the offensive side of the ball. Yeah. What did you kind of expect? from a chip long offense and did you expect it to go that well in game one yes and no I mean his credentials are unprecedented at Tulane this is a guy who in 2018 was a finalist for the Broyles award as the top assistant in the country at Notre Dame when they made the the college football playoff (laughs) he has incredible credentials Tulane did not look good in preseason practice on offense. And it was funny when I talked to him, he said he, he doesn't mind that, that he, he wants, sometimes you have to learn from failure, but you know, obviously in preseason practice, the defense knows what's coming. They're going against the offense every day, but they had a scrimmage two weeks before the Oklahoma opener never scored. First team offense, never scored. Second team offense, never scored. The defense completely dominated that scrimmage and, and Chip Long, he's an old school coach. He's a t- <laughs> he's in players faces. He's tough on them. He wasn't happy with them. And obviously it worked because Tulane gets to the Oklahoma game. First time they have the ball, drive down the field, touchdown. Second time they have the ball, drive down the field, touchdown. Third time they have the ball, Michael Pratt throws a perfect pass to their best wide receiver, Jaquan Jackson. He drops it. <laughs> they ended up punting. And then the turnovers started happening in the second quarter. They recovered from that, moved at will in the fourth quarter too. This is offense. It, they use a lot more motion than they ever did before. They had crossing routes. They get, he's an old tight ends coach. The tight ends are wide open all over the field in the first two games. You can definitely see the imprint of Chip Long on this offense. And and he also, Michael Pratt's a heck of a quarterback too. That that combination really has this Tulane offense in places it had never been before under Willie Fritz. I had forgotten about that first drop because in in all actuality, you could make the case if you take, like aside from the turnovers, there was Mm -hmm. really only one non-self-inflicted stop that entire game. Right. From Tulane's offense. And then, of course, last week, I mean, they rolled over Morgan State, as you would anticipate, but just kind of kept turning along. Mm -hmm. It is a lot of pre-snap motion and you're around it every day and and at least seen a decent sample size of it through two games. It's a ton of pre-snap motion. It's something where you looked at it on the surface. You figure like just from the naked eye, not knowing a ton about it, you would think, oh, it's kind of a not not gimmicky, but a. A quarterback who's pretty good with his feet doesn't necessarily have to have a great arm and they run the ball a lot and use their back straight. That's not actually what it is at all. It's very balanced and mm-hmm. they create a lot of interesting looks and put defensive backs in a lot of stressful situations, particularly in man coverage based off of all that pre-snap motion. And I know I just kind of like threw a lot at you, but I was looking at it earlier mm-hmm. and it, that's certainly something that stuck out in your mind. If, if you were telling someone that didn't really have any idea 
what this offense looks like when it's functioning optimally, what would that look like in your mind? Yeah, you know, I can't really tell you for sure yet because Tulane has only played two games under Chip Long. One was against Oklahoma where they fell behind early, and then Morgan State, we can just throw that game out because Morgan State's maybe the worst team that the Tulane's ever played in, <laughs> in, in their history. Just such a bad team. Um, but, uh, I, yeah, it, it's balanced. It, Willie Fritz has always been a run-first coach. Um, he realized to, after they made – it's another impressive thing about Willie Fritz. Tulane finally made a bowl game in his third year as coach. Most coaches that are at Tulane rest on their laurels and get the bask in the glory of finishing seven and six. He fired his offensive coordinator before the bowl game because he had realized that his run-first, somewhat option-influenced offense wasn't going to get it done in the American Athletic Conference. And, and, and he brought in Will Hall, Mississippi legend, as his offensive coordinator, and the offense really changed – two years ago, Julian's actually put up, I think the third highest and fourth highest scoring totals in their history under Will Hall the last two years. So the offense had already started to develop some confidence. And then when Michael Pratt came in in the third game last year, the offense really changed and you saw it finally they had real balance, but I'm not actually sure so far from what I've seen, definitely the chip along offense passes a lot more than the Will Hall offense even did the last two years, but that could be circumstance. He, he, he wanted to get all that in, in the preseason to get guys ready we'll learn a lot more in this Ole Miss game, how much, whether Tulane is still a run first team at heart or whether they really are this more wide open passing offense that we've seen in the, in the first two games. Yeah. It's a great point. Cause I didn't really think about the aspect of them getting behind and really having to throw the football the entire second half in that Oklahoma game. If they wanted any sort of sandwich to get back in the game, what was the different biggest difference between the Will Hall offense? Obviously, the most a lot of people listening to this are probably pretty familiar. Will Hall takes the job at Southern Miss. What right. was the biggest difference? Because it's it's interesting to me a lot of times, particularly in kind of the modern day and age of college football, particularly when you have a young quarterback like that, when kind of his guy goes, yeah. you know, I, did Michael Pratt ever take a look at anything else? Or what was that change like specifically for Pratt going from a Will Hall offense to yeah. Chip Long so far? I'm not, I'm not sure he was thrilled. You'd never get him to say that um, because, yeah, he'd gotten really comfortable in, in, in the Will Hall offense. And even though Will Hall and Chip Long are former college roommates and best friends, that's how Chip Long got to Tulane. He, had, he said he had followed Tulane incredibly closely the whole time Will Hall was offensive coordinator. He already knew the personnel and everything else because they're such close friends. But their offenses look, to me, quite different. Um, Will Hall was definitely a run-first coach. He put some balance into the offense, but just – the, the plays Tulane's running now, the cro- the constant crossing patterns, the constant motion, um, getting the tight ends heavily involved in the offense. Again, Chip Long had coached the tight end specifically, even as an offensive coordinator, both at Memphis and at Notre Dame. He's not doing that at Tulane, but that clearly shows how much he, he values that position in his offense. And, and, and just guys getting wide open. I, there were guys against – they got their tight end Tyreek James completely uncovered against Oklahoma in, in, in the first half. And they'd run the exact same play about the only good play they ran in their scrimmage. I told you about where they didn't score the same exact play. And he's running uncovered down the sideline. I asked the players how they do that. And they won't, you know, that's, that's, they're not, they're not revealing <laughs> secrets on that front or anything like that. But this, I don't really think there are a ton of similarities between his offense and Will Hall's offense. And that's part of the adjustment and maybe why Michael Pratt, sort of struggled in the preseason. It, it, he threw a lot at him too. It's a lot more complex. The playbook is thicker, stuff like that. Yeah, I think it just, it, they needed all of the spring and the preseason to really get comfortable in, in what he's doing. But, but Pratt, just a quick story about Pratt. 
before his senior year of high school, he was at a small high school in, in South Florida and was the stud there. He transferred to a high school that had a Division I signee at Southern Miss, no less, coming back and returning a starting quarterback because he wanted to test himself. He had no guarantee he'd even win the starting job. He beat the guy out. Into Southern Miss ended up taking away the guy's scholarship offer, and uh, and he ended up taking his team to the semifinals of the state playoffs. So he's a really competitive guy who likes situations. He fell in love with Tulane. So I don't ever, I actually don't think he ever considered leaving or anything like that. But I'm sure it, it was definitely a shock to the system going from a, from a Will Hall, um, who, who's one of the most positive, optimistic coaches I've been around, to Chip Long, who coaches out of fear a lot of times. <laughs> It's a great way to put it. Yeah, the the whole it was interesting coming out. The course, like not like national college football narrative out of that game mm-hmm. was like, you know, it, every year it's like, oh, the Oklahoma defense is for real this year, and then of course they give up thirty five yeah. to Tulane. But actually, if you look at any closely at all at that game, like that offense, pardon my French, but a real M effort to face in game one with all the mm-hmm. pre snap motions and the yeah. different crossing routes and everything they throw at you on a given snap in your first game, like that that would yeah. just be an absolute ter- nightmare is offense to face. And I think even early on in the year, Ole Miss is going to face some trouble with that. They implemented the three, two, six scheme right. still relatively new. I think it's worked well for them so far. Cause it, mm-hmm. it, it really hits on a lot of their strengths in terms of them having some newfound depth in the secondary. But do you anticipate that they'll test Ole Miss running the football? Because Ole Miss was terrible against the uh, run last yes. year. They, you know, haven't really been tested at all. Louisville's game plan was horrendous. Uh, credit to mm-hmm. Quentin Bivens. He did play a nice game at defensive tackle that first game, but I don't think Ole Miss has been tested. And you've seen a lot of throwing the ball so far in this chip long offense. Do you anticipate a shift more toward running the football this week? I do. And I think especially early to find out Tulane's offensive line is better this year, but it's been its weakness. Even while putting up prolific rushing totals under Willie Fritz, sometimes they were doing it with mirrors. It looked like, but when they played good teams, they didn't run as well. But certainly with Ole Miss struggling and stopping the run last year. And it, it, it's funny, before the Oklahoma game, and, and I think it was he was purposely being misleading, um, Willie Fritz went out and said that he's always a run-first coach and that's what he believes in and that's what he's always going to do no matter how his offensive coordinator is, that that's how you win. And then they go out and throw the ball like their first 10 plays against Oklahoma. <laughs> I think that was designed. But Tulane has really good running backs. Cameron Carroll um, – He's an excellent running back, had about 12 rushing touchdowns last year. And the wild card is Ty J Spears, who was absolutely terrific for two games in one quarter last year. And then on a touchdown against Southern Miss, he tore his ACL in the third game and was out for the rest of the year. He's been limited in his first two games in the number of carries. He carried once against Morgan State, scored a touchdown. That was enough to get him out of there. Um, but I think he in particular might get a much heavier load if he's ready. You never can tell with these ACL injuries that he says he's hundred percent. The coaches say he's hundred percent. They haven't given him the ball enough to, to show that, but he's, he's a difference maker. They've got good running backs, but he's, when he's totally healthy, he looked like he was going to run for 1500 yards last year, early, early in the year. That that's how good he can be. But I, I definitely think you'll see Tulane run the ball more in the first quarter, but they'll find out pretty quickly whether their offense, whether that's working or not in terms of whether they can push Ole Miss's line around and if they can't I think you'd see them go back more to the, the pass first I'm glad you went there with Spears because that's what I was going to ask you next naturally after kind of getting into the running game a little bit you're right he was terrific for two games in a quarter tears his ACL he didn't need to play very much last week just basing just going off surface level looking at kind of some of the stats and then obviously the scoreboard 
He has six carries for 20 yards in the two lane, excuse me, in the Oklahoma game. But I imagine it, that's very much the, like, that was very much indicative of the score and Tulane having to throw the ball and yeah. move the ball in large chunks to get back in the game. And so that's what I was going to ask. I know you hit on it a little bit. Do you think he's healthy? I know you never know, but you yeah. kind of had the weird first game where they were forced to throw it. He didn't need to play last week. Do you think they will have reservations about giving him, I don't know, 15-ish carries or something if, he, no. if it's needed? I'm not sure. The funny Tulane is about the only school in the country that still opens all of their practices from start to finish to reporters. So I watched every practice, but it doesn't really matter much anymore because nobody hits anymore in college football. I mean, of course he looked good, but he wasn't getting hit in practice. And when you're coming from off an injury like that, you just don't know. He didn't look great against Oklahoma. That was a very limited number of carries. It's his first game back. He, did, he didn't, he looked a little sluggish in that game. He looked pretty, his one carry against Morgan State, he juked the guy, um, did a hop, a skip, and a jump, and got, and got to the end zone, but you can, you can throw that out, too. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm honestly not sure. In the preseason, he, he, I mean, he, he was getting a lot of reps. He was getting as much reps as anybody else, um, but that's running against air. That's not running against hits, and I'm just, I, we'll find out early, because if he's ready, Let's put it this way. He's good enough that if he's really back, they will give him the ball a lot because they want to win this game and that would give them their best chance to win. But I'm not sure whether he really is totally confident yet in that knee. What is the depth like behind him? Because they've used a lot of different backs and a part of through two games. I know a part of that is them probably just trying to see some different stuff when you're Mm -hmm. kicking the shit out of Morgan State. But like, what is the depth like at running back? I know there's at least two top end guys that are pretty good, but do you you anticipate seeing, you know, four ish guys get carries? That's the Willie Fritz MO. He usually uses four running backs in a game, at least three for sure. No matter, no matter what, um, no matter who, no matter who has the hot end, he's, he's sort of that type of coach and Cameron Carroll's pretty darn good. He's a, he's a big guy and he's fast and he's got pretty good moves. He's, he's, he's a load to handle and he will, he'll, he'll be the starter for sure against Ole Miss. And then they've got a transfer from Utah, Devin Brumfield, local kid. I wouldn't, I looked at his stats at Utah. He didn't get a lot of carries, but his numbers were always much worse than the starter who was ahead of him. So I wasn't that impressed when he transferred, but he's, he looked really good in the preseason and he's looked pretty effective in his limited carries in games. He's another tough physical runner. Those three guys, him, Cameron Carroll and Tajay Spears will definitely get share the load in this game. Um, and then they've got another, uh, they've got another, um, running back, um, Eugenio Booker, who's sort of, sometimes he lines up at wide receiver, sometimes at running back. He is a really dangerous running back out of the backfield as a receiver. He'll get some reps too, but that's the Willie Fritz MO. Now, no matter who's doing what, especially in the first half, you're seeing guys all, a lot of times they're just rotating by series. One, it's one guy's series, this thing, then another guy comes in for the next series. I want to circle back before we get to defense for a little bit, just talk about Michael Pratt a little bit more. It, like somewhat under-recruited coming out of high school. You mentioned you gave that great note about the story about him beating out the kid in Southern Miss, taking his scholarship back. What prevented him from kind of getting, garnering a little bit more attention? I think what he had a Toledo offer, a couple others, but it yeah. was no high major programs. Did they find a diamond in the rough? What was the story of getting him yeah. to Tulane? And that was kind of the word at the time. I was told that when he committed, because his backup is a quarterback from New Orleans, um, Justin Ibietta, who played at a small school in New Orleans, who, I don't, I don't cover high schools in New Orleans, but all the people I know that do just raved about Ibietta, and they thought he was going to be the guy <laughs> that was going to take over at Tulane. But the people I talked to 
that had watched Michael Pratt say in high school thought he was incredibly underrated. Again, he played at a school, a pretty small school for his first three years before transferring in his senior year. So he was, he really wasn't on the radar un, until that. And that was part of it. By Tulane standards, he was a pretty good recruit though. I mean, <laughs> in terms of, of, of where, where the quarterbacks are rated, but you're right. He didn't have big offers, but I was told from the beginning, watch this kid. He came in for spring um, before his freshman year that helped him out. He showed the first couple of days in spring ball when he first arrived, he was awesome. Then the defense adjusted <laughs> to, to him and he was terrible for the rest of his spring. Not very good in the preseason of his freshman year. That, that, that's why the, the, uh, the Southern Miss transfer, who I'm blanking out his name right now, it started as, again, as Tulane starting quarterback last year for the first two games. Pratt didn't come in until um, the, the Keon Howard. Um, Keon Howard was the starter and just was god awful. I mean, just <laughs> pathetic. Um, as a passer, great guy, just couldn't couldn't hit the broadside of a barn, um, and so they 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 put in Pratt in, the, in third early in the Southern Miss game, and he immediately throws touchdown passes right off the bat. He's the, Willie Fritz doesn't believe in them, but Pratt is sort of that gamer. <laughs> he he doesn't actually look as good in practice. He doesn't have a strong arm. It's not weak, but it's not that's it's not a huge arm. And then you the lights go on. He's so freaking competitive, and suddenly the ball's being placed perfectly he's making he's running at the right time to get first down stuff like that and he just kind of galvanized the whole team he's, he's he's such a leader that it just it makes everybody around him better and still obviously very young as you mentioned coming in last year as a freshman and it was interesting I was asking you earlier a little bit about the the process of transferring not transferring going from Will Hall to mm -hmm. Chip Long what is like how much if you just best in terms you could put it how much is on his plate because just watching from the untrained eye the amount of lateral pre-snap motion and a lot of the play action and run action concepts that they give he has a lot of work to do a lot of times before he even glances downfield at whatever has developed how much responsibility and how much difficulty is it to play the quarterback position in the system? Because he's also incredibly involved in the running game. I think he's like second or third on the team in carries. Like mm -hmm. how I best you could describe it. How much responsibility does he have to make the offense go? A ton. Although I'm, I, it's a complex offense, but it's, it, it's work for Chip Long wherever he's been. He was at Memphis for one year. They had a good offense. He was at Notre Dame for three years. They were really good for two years. They had some issues the third year, but more of that really was his personality graded on, on, uh, on the other coaches more than, than his performance. That's what ended up costing him his job at Notre Dame. But, but he, he's got the perfect quarterback to handle it in Michael Pratt. Michael Pratt is a gym rat, and he's smart, and he cares. So he puts in all the work to make sure that he has a good handle. On, on, on what he needs to do but you, you're right there, there's a there is a lot on his plate and and it's funny it's hard to see him lasting 12 games this year without getting injured at some point though because he has not quite learned yet how to get down when he needs to and he does take some hellacious hits he did last year and he did this year he's a really tough guy but sometimes he's too tough and uh Willie Fritz had a great quote about that. He said, absolutely. I mean, his deal is touchdown, first down, get down. And if you get a if you can get a touchdown, you can take the hit. If you can get a first down, you can take the hit. Other otherwise get down. He said he still has to work with Michael Pratt on that, but he'd much prefer to have to work on him with that than having him be the other way and him having to teach him to be more aggressive. Um, but yeah, that really with Michael Pratt, that's the biggest concern right now is will he be able to make it through a full season without without taking the injury that, that knocks him out of a game?
They seem like they were in a similar position as Ole Miss was heading into the season where they returned a decent bit at wide receiver. Now, granted, Ole Miss obviously lost Elijah Moore, but the candidates to be successful or to kind of step up as the number one, number two guy for Ole Miss at wide receiver were already on the roster. They were not looking hard in the portal. They were not relying on some young guys. I think Tulane returned four guys, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, contributed to some degree last year. How has that gone in terms of trying to finding a reliable first and second target through two games? Well, well, Tulane, as a group, Tulane's wide receivers were poor last year. They had two good ones, Jaquan Jackson and, uh, and Deuce Watts, but nobody going into the season um, that had done really anything at, at the college level, and, and it showed. And, and the funny thing is this year, Jaquan Jackson and Deuce Watts haven't done much in the first two games. Jaquan Jackson hurt his knee in preseason, missed a couple of weeks, came back, looked fine, but it looks like he's been a little little rusty in, in the first two games. Had 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 the big drop against Oklahoma because um, I, I I thought he was I thought he was their most valuable player on offense going into the season. I thought he was poised to just have an absolutely sensational year. Deuce Watts was a junior college transfer last year who's got a lot of ability but didn't always know what he was supposed to do. I don't think switching coordinators helped him a whole lot, <laughs> having to do learn an entirely a, a, a new offense again. But they've got more, more weapons now. I mentioned the tight ends earlier. Tyreek James looks like an NFL player um, in his first two games for Tulane this year. He's had, he had a 43-yard catch against Oklahoma and a 43-yard touchdown against Morgan State. They got another wide receiver, Shea Wyatt, he played at Central Missouri, a Division II school that Willie Fritz coached for 13 years <laughs> earlier in his career. He lit it up, had over like 1,300 receiving yards. He decided he wanted to test himself at a higher level. There's always a lot of doubts when a guy's coming from Division II. You could tell from the first day of preseason he was one of Tulane's best receivers. He just has a knack for getting open, runs great routes. Um, he had a big game against Oklahoma. Um, they basically last year, it was Jaquan Jackson, Deuce Watts or nothing. And this year they, 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 they've got more players. Another, a, a, a senior who came back for his COVID year, Jatavian Tolls. They, they were so unsure about him at wide receiver last year that they moved him to cornerback in the preseason, even though they had no depth at wide receiver last year, then they ended up moving him back. He didn't have a big year. He's having a great first two games. Um, so there's definitely, there's definitely more, more weapons. And, and Chiplon clearly, with the fact that they targeted Deuce Watts and Jaquan Jackson so little in the first two games, it's Chiplon, he came in with a blank slate on all these guys, and he, he wants, he's throwing to the guys that are open and the guys that are making plays. And so far, it's been different guys this year. But the receivers are way ahead. Last year, they were poor. Just straight up, they dropped so many passes. They dropped as many passes as they caught a lot of times in games last year. They still have some drops issues as a group, but it's a lot better this year than it was last year. Defensively, I know there's not a whole lot you could tell from last week, but given that Oklahoma game, look, they give up 40 points. Oklahoma's offense one of the yeah. best in the country. But again, at the same time, they, they, your offense fumbles three times for you, unless you're elite of the elite. That's going to take a toll in terms of the scoreboard and oftentimes the stat sheet as well. Coming into the year, it seemed like they returned a decent bit. I know they were trying to replace the – in Patrick Johnson, the school's all-time leading sack leader. I know they Correct. had some way to replace up front. Just kind mm -hmm. of your general overview of what you expected from this defense and what they were replacing coming into the year. Yeah, I was pretty sure their defense was going to be better than last year. They had one of the strangest years I've ever seen on defense last year because on first and second down, they were pretty good. They, I mean, they had Patrick Johnson, the all-time sacks leader, as you pointed out. And on the other side, they had Cam Sample, who pro football focus rated the most valuable defensive lineman in all of college football after watching tape. 
from last year. They had those two guys. And then when they get teams in third and long and even fourth and long, they're the worst defense I've ever seen. I mean, it was unbelievable. They gave up more big plays than any. They were 128th out of 128 one college football teams last year in big plays given up. And it was just, it was, it was, you, you got to watch tape of that Tulsa game. That was one of the most incredible losses I've ever seen. Tulane was up 14, nothing at Tulsa in the fourth quarter. Tulsa was down to their third quarterback. And then they converted like a fourth and 10 and a fourth and 11 on one drive and scored a touchdown. And then they threw a hail Mary on the last play of regulation from 40 yards out to tie it up in overtime and to get it to overtime. And then one on a pick six, the defense just completely had no confidence in those situations. So, Willie Fritz fired his defense, his longtime defensive coordinator um, at the end of the season, who uh, who's actually on Hugh Freeze's staff now <laughs> um, as a as a like a as a position coach. Um, but and, and he brought in a, his former DBs coach who had left for Duke the previous year, Chris Hampton, because they just couldn't take it was just it was insane. Another game against SMU SMU beat him in overtime and had about four plays of 50 yards or more all on third or long. It's just mystifying stuff that, um, just that, just a lack of confidence in what they were doing and with the scheme. They seem to have fixed that, but I, this that'll be the big test against Ole Miss because they have <laughs> Lane Kiffin averaging 600 yards a game in the first two games. This is the test where they find out whether they fixed those holes that where they just couldn't get off the field on third and long or, or and third downs that they had last year. Um, and, and, and we'll find out because they, they feel like they're a lot better, but there's no way to know that Oklahoma is a tough team to stop under any circumstance and Morgan State, anybody can stop. I was going to ask about the third down thing because I actually found some some note earlier today. And I'm I literally as I was flipping through the notepad while you're answering that question, I can't find the mark. But they're you're right. They're third and fourth down defense. They they gave up a kind of absurd percentage. Yeah. I wish I could find it. I might have yeah. to go back and add this in later because it was something ridiculous. But through two downs, as you mentioned, they're pretty good. Parts ways with Curtis, who'd been on Fritz's staff for a long time. What has been the difference with Thompson's defense? And has it been rather consistent or is he pretty drastic change so far no i honestly i haven't seen a lot of difference in in, in what they're they're doing a, a little bit of difference but you know what they've done had worked in the past before um and then and, and and this guy he was he, he coached under fritz for the first four years of his time at tulane i, I think it was more just belief the the players had had sort of tuned Jack Curtis out for whatever reason. They just didn't believe in what he was, what he was teaching them anymore. I don't quite understand what was going on there, but they do seem to play with a lot more energy this year and, and, and confidence, but we'll see. <laughs> I, I, I'll, be, I'll be a lot more confident in knowing what this defense has after the Ole Miss game. But I will say this, their linebackers are awesome. Tulane has four excellent linebackers. Their two leading tacklers last year at linebacker on the team didn't start at, at, at linebacker. Nick Anderson was a junior college transfer from Mississippi. He's unbelievably good. Um, and Dorian Williams, I think, led the American Athletic Conference in tackles for loss. He's unbelievably good. And they backed up two guys who returned <laughs> this year. Um, Kevin Henry, an Oklahoma State graduate transfer, had an interception return for a touchdown against Morgan State. And Marvin Moody um, has been a, had been a three-year starter for them. So they rotate those guys in and out and all four of them can make plays from sideline to sideline. So they're, I mean, they're the heart of the defense and they're the reason I had a feeling the defense would survive not having a, a Patrick Johnson and a cam sample this year. Biggest concern defensively, whether you take that any way you want it, whether that's this game, obviously I imagine it would come towards the back end in the secondary, but just in general heading into the year, what was the biggest question you had yeah, about the defense? Pass defense in general, because 
you, you don't replace a Patrick Johnson. I mean, that you're not, again, he, he led the team in career sacks leader and they've got some a good player that's replaced him named Angelo Anderson, but he's only in his second year and he only started the only game he started last year was the bowl game. Um, the other side, they're using a, a variety of guys, including Jojo Dorcius, who's a longtime starter at Memphis who, who transferred to Tulane for his, for his final year this year, but they didn't get any pressure on Oklahoma, but you know, not too many. That's an old teams don't pressure Oklahoma too much. Their offensive line might have five NFL starters on the offensive line. And of course they got a lot of pressure on Morgan state and that doesn't mean anything either. So it's a combination. Are they going to get enough pressure to affect the quarterback's throws? Cause it's hard for any secondary to cover when you're not. And then again, just can the defensive backs stand up? They, they pretty much have the same crew that they had last year. They got it. Darian Rakestraw, a Colorado starter, transferred in at safety, so he's one addition. Um, they've got Lance Robinson, a cornerback who was at Oklahoma State, but they rotate in, they rotate in, in and out. But the rest of the guys are the same guys, and those guys just have to play a heck of a lot better than they did last year. And that may be, and they have to play a heck of a lot better while not getting as good a pass rush probably as they did last year. So that that's a, that's that's clearly the big question with this team. What went into the decision to promote from within? Was it as simple as, hey, for two downs, this, we're actually not terrible? Like, this is not a complete dumpster fire where we need yeah. a complete overhaul. We just need someone – we need a different messenger. Was it as simple as that? Yeah, it wasn't quite promoting from within because Hampton had left to go to Duke last year. That's right, year. for a year. Because he was there from 16 to 19. I mean, <laughs> it certainly wasn't the splash hire <laughs> um, that Chip Long was. Um, so – yeah, I think that's exactly it. Their defense had been pretty – three years ago, their defense was excellent. Three years ago, Memphis made the AAC championship game. Tulane beat them 40-24 to 24 and was up 40-10 to 10 midway through the fourth quarter and had sacked them nine times. And that was a Memphis team that, you know, was, had huge numbers offensively. Um, then they, they, they took a step back two years ago, but that was partly because Patrick Johnson injured his labrum midway through the year and tried to play through it and wasn't that effective. But – there was no signs going into last year that they were going to have these problems that they had. And it started, they were playing Navy, the, the, the most unbelievable game I've ever seen. They were playing Navy in their conference opener last year. Navy was God awful on offense last year. The worst offense they've ever had. We've seen it except for maybe this year where they might be even worse. And Tulane was up 24 to nothing at halftime against a team that cannot throw to save their lives. And the defense gave up the offense stopped scoring. The defense gave up 27 points in the second half. And they lost the game at home 27 to 24 against a team. They should have beaten 48 to nothing. It was right then that you knew something was wrong with, with, with this team and with, and with their confidence. Cause you, bad teams, horrible teams don't lose 24 to nothing. Second half leads the Navy. And here was a Tulane team that thought it was going to compete and for the conference championship doing it. And they never really recovered from that. So they, so their numbers weren't that bad overall defense. And I, I think Willie Fritz looked at his returning personnel and said, we don't need to make any great changes. We just need a voice that, that the players will, will trust. Kind of getting into some big picture stuff before I let you get out of here. The, what, the job Willie Fritz has done at Tulane so far has been pretty magnificent. I, I have to be honest, as an outsider, I was just looking up the basic, I, hell, I think it was on Wikipedia, just his year-by-year results. Three bowl games in a row is a program record. But if you had made me guess – just based off the success Tulane has had for the last four years, I would have guessed there would have been a better season than seven and six in there. Yeah. Like I would have guessed there was an eight or nine win season somewhere no in the mix just by not knowing. That doesn't take away from anything he's done. Like three bowl games in a row, that hasn't happened in Tulane right ever. That's a program record. Like 
with Fritz in year six or seven or whatever this is now, what is the next step? Because in the American Conference, you have four teams that are pretty damn good. And by pretty damn good, I'm talking about Memphis, UCF, Cincinnati. And I'll throw SMU in there just from basic mm-hmm. recent history. Is the next step getting in that tier and competing to the top of yeah, the conference? Absolutely. Like, What's the expectation this year? Yeah, and the next step could be beating Ole Miss, too, because this is how many wins <laughs> Willie Fritz in his coaching career on Power 5 conferences team. Zero. He's never been now, you know, he wasn't going to beat him at Sam Houston, (laughs) but at Georgia Southern, he almost beat Georgia. He almost beat Georgia Tech, but he didn't. At Tulane, he played Wake Forest a couple of times, close games lost. He just never, he has not been able to to get that that win against a power five conference team. But more more importantly, it's competing in the conference title. You're right. Tulane went five and three um, three years ago in, 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 in 2018 in, in conference. I actually picked Tulane to win the division, the, the AAC West in 2019. They had a dramatic win over Houston early in the year. They were five and one going to Memphis, ranked 26 in the country with a chance to get into the top 25 for the first time since their undefeated season in 1998. I picked Tulane to win that game. And Memphis scored a touchdown every time they had the ball until midway through the third quarter and beat them 50 something to like to 17. And again, then, then that Tulane team never recovered. They, they finished six and six, sneaked out a win over Southern Miss in their bowl game. But they had, Tulane was just terrible before Willie Fritz arrived and he's improved them dramatically, but they haven't taken that big step forward that you keep expecting them to do. It's not that easy to do at Tulane. And uh, this year, I think, this year they're fully equipped to do it, but this year the, the, the scheduling gods did really hurt them because Navy and Temple fell off the schedule this year. And Navy and Temple are probably the two, along with South Florida, the three worst teams in the league before. Cincinnati came on the schedule this year. And for the second straight year, Tulane has to go to UCF and play. It's a brutal schedule. It's why I picked them to go six and six again this year in the preseason, even though I think this is clearly Willie Fritz's best team. At some point, they're going to have to win one of these games that they're not supposed to win to take that next step. And the way you make it sound, it sounds like 2022 might be all signs pointing there, right? It's your third year in the system for Pratt. You return probably still a decent bit. You're right about the Temple and Navy part. As we record this on a Monday night, this will probably, as you're listening, this probably drop Wednesday. Uh, I read today that, Navy fired their offensive coordinator and then was like, no, not really just kidding. I, that, that doesn't seem like a, a straight, that doesn't seem like all things are all well if you're firing and unfiring dudes after two yeah. games, but you're right. It's looking down the schedule. It doesn't necessarily break well for them. Mm-hmm. Pitch me your best case scenario. I have two more questions about just kind of the general program yeah. and the job that is, but what pitch me your best case scenario for them in the American this year. Well, the best case scenario involves them going to Oxford and beating Ole Miss as a two touchdown underdog because they, they can talk about how confident they are, but every team talks about how confident they are. Until you do it, you're not. And that's a non-conference game, but it would just be, it would just be tremendous for the program to finally get a win like that and to validate what they believe. Uh, then then, then go, go from there. I mean, I, if, if Michael Pratt plays as well as he did against Oklahoma, and if the defense, if the secondary holds up, I think this team can play with anybody in the league except for Cincinnati that that's an awful tough assignment they do get Cincinnati in New Orleans but that that's a tough one Cincinnati's just is loaded this year but they just I don't know 
if they, if let's put it this way, if they're good enough, if they find a way to beat Ole Miss, they're certainly good enough to beat everybody in the league except for Cincinnati or to have a chance to beat everybody in the league. But yet they need to contend this year. They've gone three and five or worse in every year of Willie Fritz's tenure in the conference, except for 2018 when they went five and three. Um, so I'd say the best case scenario is them having a winning record in the league, which won't be easy considering their schedule and giving themselves a chance to get that second spot in the championship game out opposite Cincinnati. What is this Tulane job and how I actually that's a bad way to ask this in terms of the fan base and interest. I know you got the stadium and all of that. Now, how successful has Fritz been in generating interest? Because it's always been fascinating to me because I went as a high school, I'm from Jackson, Mississippi, so not too far off, but as like a high school kid, I went down there for a couple of basketball camps and stuff. It's an awesome school with mm-hmm. a cool as shit campus in a cool area of town. Like, what are the just for people that are unfamiliar? What are the challenges Fritz inherited it, and how successfully has he, I guess, conquered them? Well, the first thing he inherited was a culture of losing and a culture of I don't care. Right. Um, look, I used to do all these interviews with high school players when they committed to Tulane, and almost every one of them would mention the academic. A lot of them would mention the academics first. Hey, great, great PR, but that ain't, that that ain't what you want. <laughs> You, you just is not what you want. These are guys that went to Tulane because of the they could get a scholarship and continue playing football and get the academics for free. But also it was just that they they just didn't. There was just no belief. They they play a good game and then the players would be happy for three weeks after that and just lay an egg because they'd won a game. I mean it was really that bad. And he had to change that around. And he's totally changed that around where the, the players actually care about winning and, and, and want to win as opposed to just being happy to be playing division one football at a, a school that would take them. Um, so that, that, was, that was the first step. You've got the academic requirements. Fritz is the most positive coach I've ever dealt with. He, make, you know, he, he talks a good game about how that helps him and he, 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 he wants guys like that, but they are hamstrung a little bit in, 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 in who they can recruit. Um, so there's some built-in hurdles but a lot fewer hurdles now than, than there used to be before he arrived when, when the, the administration didn't care, the administration cares now and wants to win and they've got a coach who knows how to win. So the pieces are in place, things still dis- but things still have to break right for Tulane to, to, to be a conference contender. What's the ceiling for them in terms of generating fan interest? Like what is yeah, like the temperature of the fan base? You no, know, it's tough because they've been so bad for so long that you lose generations. Um, yeah, there, there used to be an old joke that um, if Tulane wanted to play at a place where their biggest fan base was, they'd hold it at one of the local cemeteries because <laughs> Tulane used to be. A, <laughs> my parents went to Tulane. They were from New Orleans. It was a time when a lot of New Orleans kids went to Tulane. Those days are over. There's there's all there's very few local people who go to the university and they really their students have been apathetic for years in, in sports. They just, you know, the, 1998, that's a long time ago. That, they, they, none of their students were born the last time Tulane had a really good football team. Um, and even that one came out, of the, came out of the blue for two years when they had Tommy Bowden. So it, it's hard to recreate that. They have not done it yet in terms of the, of the fan-supported games. Um, they need a breakthrough. They need, you know, first you have to win. And then the fans usually don't show up right away. You have to win for a couple of years before you start getting that fan base back. And, and that's, that, that's the chore, but it, it has not happened yet. Why do you think Fritz took this job? It's kind of an interesting case, right? Cause he's in his early sixties. It's not yeah. like 
Will Hall took the gig one big yeah. and then catapulted him to whatever he wanted to do next. Why do you think he took this job and how long do you think he'll stay? Yeah, I, I'm not sure how long he'll stay. It depends. He'll stay for a long time if they keep going six and six. Um, because even though that's successful by two lane standards, he's applied me. He applied for the Arkansas job. He applied for the Kansas job this this past year. I mean, he, he's applied for jobs. He hasn't gotten it because he hasn't quite had enough. Of, he's old, A, and so that's a detriment for a lot of schools. And two, he hasn't had that true breakthrough season. But no, he came to Tulane because one, the American Athletic Conference is an infinitely better football conference than uh, the Sun Belt, at least <laughs> um, where he came from, from, from Georgia Southern. So he, he saw the upside. He wanted a challenge. Everywhere he's been, he's had a challenge. Everywhere he's been, he's upgraded the program big time. So I, I think that's where, where he was going. Um, the American Athletic Conference, all their games are on TV. The Sun Belt, not so much. Um, and I think he felt like he could win at, at Tulane, and, and he has won. He's not happy. And I know Chip Long is not happy. Chip Long did not come to Tulane to be the offensive coordinator of a six and 16. <laughs> Chip, Chip Long came to Tulane to lead them to, to, to great heights. Um, and, and then probably to, to head on elsewhere after that, that happens. But uh, six and six is not what Willie Fritz envisions for himself. And it's not what Chip Long envisions for, for, for the program. But the next step is actually improving and, and getting to where they want to be. What do you think happened Saturday? Good question. I mean, I'm a skeptic until it actually happens. Um, again, I, I, I think the key is going to be how Tulane secondary holds up against Ole Miss because it just it has not held up against really good passing teams in, in the past. Um, I mentioned that Memphis game from a couple of years ago is a perfect example. <laughs> a lot of people were picking Tulane to win that game. I remember ESPN, they had that one of their games, so like four of their six panelists picked Tulane to win against Memphis and the final score was like 52 to 17. Um, that to me will be the key. I think, I think Tulane will move the ball on, on Ole Miss. Tulane proved that against Oklahoma and Oklahoma has a, a much better defense than, than Ole Miss does. I think Tulane will be able to run to some extent, and I think Tulane will be able to pass. They'll be able to score, but the question is, are they going to be able to stop Lane Kiffin's offense and, and a quarterback who's just been on fire <laughs> for the first two games? If they can do that, I think they can win, but my pick would be Ole Miss because Tulane has to – first, Tulane has, they have to prove it for four quarters, and they haven't done that yet. Gary Smith, I really appreciate the time, man. This was awesome stuff. I really enjoyed the conversation. Read them in the pages of The Advocate, thewavereport.com, the uh, uh, Tulane rival site, G-U-E-R Smith on Twitter. I really appreciate it, man. And uh, are you headed to Oxford? I am coming to Oxford, mate. Book my uh, book my uh, reservations and what? Grenada, 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 55 Yeah, there we go, Grenada. Uh, <laughs> today, because I knew I wasn't getting anywhere, getting any place in Oxford <laughs> from, from previous experience. But uh, so I, I will be there at the game. Awesome. Well, safe travels, man. I really appreciate the time and we'll have to do this again sometime. Thanks for having me on. And that was Gary Smith. Really appreciate his time. Offer, thought he offered a lot of valuable insight. I learned a lot more about what is a really interesting Tulane team and a very capable Tulane team, kind of making to look a splat, make a bigger splash as a program beyond just getting to bowl games and becoming a competent program again. So appreciate his time. Hope you guys enjoyed the pod. Thanks for listening. As always, always appreciate the feedback, both good and bad. It's been cool to see this podcast grow. We'll be back at it with Mailback Friday. I'll probably – Sprinkle some other guest in there uh, as well. I'm debating it. It may just be me and Greg. May uh, I don't know. We'll have our picks 
Um, I say Mailbag Friday. We'll have our picks. I might take some questions. I might have a guest on. I'm not really sure. But we'll be back on Friday, and you guys have a safe beginning to your week. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.